0: Hello, welcome to another episode of How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent within the community. I'm your host, Tunde, and this week we welcome to the show Tunji Akintokun, a leader and director within the tech industry. Like a few others that we've had on the show, he's managed to battle through major adversity in his childhood to be really successful today. He is currently a senior director and leading the UK and Ireland marketing solutions team at LinkedIn. Before that, he led sales and marketing teams at the likes of Cisco and PwC, amongst other companies. He's also an angel investor and has invested in many black-led businesses. He's a non-exec director at Teach First, Grant Thornton and English Athletics. He's an avid art collector, and he's also passionate about other things such as diversity, science and technology, social mobility and sports. He was even an Olympic torchbearer at the Rio Olympics in 2016. And I think he is probably the first recipient of an MBE that we've had on the show, so I will definitely be asking him about that. Tunji, thank you so much for being on the show today. Really pleased that you, we finally managed to get you on the show. People probably won't know, but I contacted Sunji probably back end of last year. And I said, look, we've um, bumped into each other a couple of times over the years. Would you like to be on the show? And he said, yes, would love to be on the show, but can we do sometime middle of next year? And I was like, <laughs> this guy is really busy. So yeah, finally, really good to get you on the show. How, how are you doing
1: today? Yeah, very well, actually, today, very well. Yeah, just uh, coming back from some travel abroad last week, so just getting over the jet lag, but all good, all good.
0: And where, where did you go?
1: I was in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, for our Global Leadership uh, Summit at LinkedIn, where I work. So, yeah, it's pretty good. Kind of gives us a uh, precursor for what's going on for next fiscal year, so we get a bit of a heads-up as a senior leadership team, and then that'll get distilled out to uh employees um, over the next uh, couple of months okay sounds good sounds good so for people that don't
0: know I mentioned earlier that we we bumped into each other a couple of times over the years I actually did a bit of volunteering for, for Tunji when he was part of an organization called Your Future Your Ambition but I've read or heard recently that you've you've since left the organization like in terms of you know sort of day-to-day Sort of management and leadership of the organization. So when did you sort of depart from the organization?
1: Yeah, I left uh, probably around um, 2018 actually and um, I think it's like anything um, when you're, you know, when you're leading any organization or being part of it in your core part there's always a journey and, you know, from a leadership perspective I'm always a great believer that you should uh, be able to grow Um, your team and grow the infrastructure so that you almost make yourself redundant in that position. And then it allows it to go on further. And uh, uh, Rashada, Harry, my colleague at Cisco at the time and myself, I think we've we've built it to a point where really, um, you know, to the next stage of its evolution, um, it was right for Rashada to lead that. And, um, you know, I think i would served the purpose I needed to do in getting it to be a sustainable business that, social enterprise rather that continues to run. So I'm quite comfortable with that. Um, And, um, you know, Rashad has taken it to another level. She's navigated it through, you know, the pandemic and uh, made it into a virtual event when need be as well. So uh, it continues to flourish and that's a good thing to see.
0: Yeah. I mean, I'll I'll include a link in the show notes, but this is an organisation, Your Future, Your Ambition, that kind of encourages... You have an, an event once a year, at the Emirates Stadium at Arsenal just encourages young people, I'm not quite sure what age is, but certainly teenagers up until maybe sort of early 20s to get well, into younger STEM. younger
1: than that, actually.
0: Is it younger than that? Yeah, okay. so yeah.
1: Um, from um, school age, from um, literally primary school age right the way through to, you know, 21, 22-year-olds that are about to start their uh, career in, uh, in working.
0: And particularly focusing on STEM subjects. So if any of you out there have got kids or, you know, you've got nephews and nieces potentially thinking about that uh, as i say I'll, I'll share the the link in the show notes and well well worth checking that out do you know when they have the events is it is it the end of each year or is it sort of
1: um it's varied i think uh, i think when we started in the first year we did it we did it in, on the 4th of july actually in two thousand and twelve. it was during the olympic year um, and then we moved it to um I think was March and then eventually October, which is to coincide with Black History Month. I think it may have moved after that. But um, if you go to the website, it's www.yfya.co.uk. You'll see the details there as to when they're running the next one. Well, this is about you.
0: So I'm really excited to um, hear your journey because I think people will get a lot of inspiration from it. Um, So if you go right back to the start in terms of where you were born, where where did you actually grow up and where, where were you born?
1: I was born in London. Um, I was born in West London, actually, at uh, St Mary's Hospital in Paddington, which is a, a fairly well-known uh, hospital. I spent my first few months uh, at home. Um, my, my father was uh, a lawyer and uh, my mum was an engineer. And um, we spent a little bit of time in in our house in labrick grove we actually lived. i still go back to the house every now and then it was 174 labrick grove i wish we owned it today Gosh, it be <laughs> <right>. <laughs> but um so i was there for a little while and then probably what was um quite consistent and quite common during the um, i guess the era i was born is that i was uh, fostered so a lot of nigerian families that came over or young couples rather came over here in the 60s they were still doing their education or still working and and trying to make something but they started their families and it wasn't uncommon to be fostered so um, I spent the first eight years of my life um, actually fostered Um, and I um, was with a foster family out in um, a couple of areas um, outside of London which I um, you know was fond memories of growing up quite tough at times um but you know i think it was uh an interesting time um growing up and i you know the the family i lived with was an irish family and i was um probably classed as like the middle child so they had they had their own biological children that were younger than me as well uh, after me so uh i was kind of in the middle and there was an older an older sibling in the house but um fond memories of growing up um and then my mum at 8 years old brought us back to london And um, I came back to London. And by that time, unfortunately, my father had passed. He was a a sickler. He had sickle cell. And um, you can imagine back in the day, it wasn't particularly that well treated, certainly for black people in this country. And as a result, um, he had a crisis coming out of chambers in uh, Lincoln's Inn and unfortunately passed. So my mum then was um, tasked with bringing, I had an older brother and myself up, And brought us back to London, and I then resided in Tottenham. So I spent a little bit of time living in Tottenham, um, and luckily I supported the red side of of North London (laughs) rather than the. (laughs) And um, and then from there we moved to East London, which is why I did most of the rest of my primary and then my secondary school education. So that was um, you know an interesting time. I can remember it uh, fondly quite a tough time I think the, the national front was um at that time starting to get prominence
0: so what when when was this what year Do you, are we talking late 70s early 80s or uh, 80s 80s okay
1: yeah and yeah it was pretty tough you know and I went to school in Canning Town so uh, you know you have to navigate the the skinheads and stuff like that but on the way home at times uh, I've got a few physical scars to to remind me of that but um Nonetheless, I kind of left school at 16 with a you know a bunch of O levels, and then went on to do some A levels. Up. Alongside that, I was a, quite a a decent athlete. But um, I guess if I just slightly rewind, because it's probably relevant, um, when I started primary school at 11, uh, sorry, secondary school at 11, um, I guess we're a bit unfortunate again, and there was I guess tragedy stuck our family, that my mother passed so um it was quite a difficult time because um you know technically I was an orphan yeah. um I had a a stepfather my mother had remarried but unfortunately that hadn't worked out so it kind of left us in a state where um I wasn't um I wasn't at home so I spent quite a bit of time not living anywhere and and that was probably the trickiest time of my life I guess I won't go into much detail of it but it was pretty you know Pretty hard. You had you only had a few choices in life at, at that age. You either went into care, which I wasn't prepared to do, or you um, you know you fend for yourself. And, and I chose the, the latter. Which, right, um, was um, interesting, but uh, I managed to get through and gone on to do my uh, my A levels and then go on to, uh, to to study at uni.
0: I mean, you've you've all, already within five minutes, you've already touched on so many different things there. I mean, yeah, it sounds like you don't want to go into too much about the sort of post your parents and I won't, I won't sort of go into that. But what I would like to explore just a little bit, if you don't mind, is just the fostering, because that is something that I've personally been through. I've been through that whole process where, um, you know, you're fostered out to a white family. And actually, I know one or two others. I don't know if you know the actor Jimmy Akinbola.
1: Actually, no, I know his brother quite well. I know, Jimmy, uh, I, know I know his brother shot her very well. Too, yeah, from Jimi Rockway. Yeah, yeah. And I don't
0: know if you. I think it was after the pandemic, or maybe during the pandemic, he actually came out with a a documentary about the whole his whole experience of it. And I was just wondering, for various people, people have positive experiences of it. Others, it's quite mixed. Others, it's particularly bad. I mean, how how was your experience of it?
1: Mine was good. I mean, it, it, it's an unfortunate thing because I think the term that came out was farming, if I remember yeah, rightly. exactly. And, yeah. Um, and and I and I agree. I think everyone's experience is different. I I have to say mine was positive. Um, mm. I had a very good experience. I was with a, a white Irish family. I, I think the probably the worst I had at school was that uh, unusually, and I'm probably glad I'm bald now. Is I had um I had a, a big lock of ginger hair, basically. So you can imagine that school being black with ginger hair probably wasn't something that was uh, seen every day. So probably the worst I got was my hair being pulled and then obviously complexion of your skin, people kind of like more curious rather than sort of, you know, being bullied as such. So, you know, once that was over and done with, people just re- realised you were pretty normal, that was it. But my I think my foster parents had more strange looks Obviously, walking me down the street from time to time, but I think it was an era where that was it was a lucrative business for for a lot of people to do that. And um, you know, you know, most people. I was actually, I actually had another a, another young Nigerian girl that was living with us as well from another family, and, I, and I've yeah. never seen her again because I left my foster parents before she did. She was probably a year younger than me, um, as she was still there. And to this day, I've never. You know, never seen her again, and I probably never will do. But um, I, I would hope her experience was like mine, which was quite happy. But similarly, I've met people that I know who have had not such good experience of it. But equally, I've got a lot of friends and and close family friends who were friends of my parents who did something similar. Who you know to this day are still close to their um, their foster parents. Uh, for those that are still alive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's there's, there's actually something, um, I think it was a Guardian article about the whole, you know, that whole era. I think it's kind of, it's no longer existing now, I, I would hope. But um, again, somebody else that's quite well known, It's he's. I think he's a food critic and he writes for The Evening Standard. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Jimmy, yeah, I can't remember his surname, but he, he wrote a piece on it. So I'll send that to you. I mean, just just the last thing about that whole thing, because I know it's quite personal. I mean, do you think, What impact did that fostering have on your identity back then? Because I know for me and and, and my siblings, we can only imagine if we had stayed with the family, you know, and it was a positive experience, but we would be completely different people, I think, if we had stayed in that kind of environment.
1: Would would, would that be the same for you? Yeah, I think it was. And I think that was one of the reasons why my mum wanted me um, out of there eventually, because I think... um, I was probably becoming too Anglicized. I probably hadn't had a very good um, exposure to my culture as such. Mm. Um, One of the things I, you know, at the time it didn't feel, and you probably would appreciate this as well, is that most Nigerians that came over here were given what you would call a Christian name or an English name to help assimilate better into society here. And um, although I was born here, I always used to be curious. A lot of my Nigerian friends have an English name whether its Peter, Michael, or a biblical name, whereas I never got one. But um, my understanding is that my my dad wanted who I had the same name as my dad. He wanted to make sure that you, are, you know, I know my identity. So I've got no sort of English name to play with uh, or I could interchange. So, you know, I th- I think that was probably a good thing when my mum took me out. Then the first thing she did actually is I went back to um I went back to our town. In Nigeria, and my mum left me there for three months with my grandmum uh, to give me a bit of assimilation, and that was probably a good thing. So I went back to Malaysia, um, spent three months there, got spoiled by my grandmum and my granddad, who was uh, still alive then, and um, it was a good time. You know, at the time I felt I thought I was going to get abandoned there, but mum was just <laughs> back here. But when she came back, I think that gave me uh, a little bit of grounding as to who I was and my identity. I learned a bit more about my family and you probably know this and we've had this conversation so my my mother's maiden name is mackinday you know so I, I know my family there and I know my father's family Akintoken family as well so I think that's that's been quite important and I think having that grounding early meant that I didn't really lose that sense of identity even when I came back and we lived in East London growing up I had a very good balance of friends and um you know, people around me that ensured that, you know, my culture was intact. And I think um, by the time I got to my mid-teens, I was kind of comfortable of who I was. Probably maybe didn't, um, you know, I, I didn't speak Yoruba at all at the time. I understood it relatively well and still do now, but I don't speak it as well. But in terms of most of the knowledge and history of Nigeria, I think as time went on, I wanted to know more. And then I've you know in more recent years, probably in the last 20 years or so, I've reconnected with my family and know a lot more about you know my own family's background and how many generations I can trace back. So that's been a really good exercise, but you know it's just filled in a few of the dots or a few of the blanks I had and connected some of the dots um, around what I already knew. So it's been a good for me, you know, I didn't lose that identity, and my mum played a huge role in making sure. Before she passed, that I kind of knew my roots and knew who, where I came from, what my name meant, and what I was expected to be. That's uh, that's good to hear. So, as you
0: sort of touched on earlier, you, you obviously you went into into school. By all accounts, you were uh, sort of quite academic, and um, I read I read elsewhere that your kind of passion uh, for all things electronic and sort of engineering was spiked by uh, somebody from IBM coming into the school. Is, is that correct?
1: Yeah, it is, actually. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, you know, you have these days where people come into um, to school to, to tell you about careers and um, what they do. And uh, I just remember, I remember, you yeah, know, they told us this engineer was coming in from IBM and um, we all kind of, like, got into the classroom and he came in. And uh, he came in with... Um, what was the ibm pc was the first of the personal computers and he told the story of how this computer that was on the desk was replacing a computer that was almost the size of the classroom so they've shrunk it down and i was fascinated um was like you know wow that's you know that's unbelievable you know tell me more and i just got interested and that kind of sparked my interest in um microelectronics and computers and microprocessors and um yeah I pivoted I think this was like in my third form at school where you choose your options and um yeah it defined you know I kind of did you know math pure and applied math and physics and um, at that time computer studies and science wasn't really something that was taught in schools you tended to do that in college so um when I left school I did both I did um I did a B-Tech in microelectronics alongside my A-levels um, together because that gave me the practical experience of understanding how that worked. And, yeah, I loved it. I, you know, I loved tech. I loved um, microprocessors. You know, I studied microelectronics. I did software engineering after that. And, um, yeah, started my career as a, as, a, um, as a designer or a hardware design engineer. Um, and it was like my dream job. So I, I love doing that for many years, and even to this day. I mean, you know, I don't fiddle around with it as much now, but you know, things like Raspberry Pi's and stuff like that, and a bit of coding is great to to kind of <laughs> get into. Unfortunately, neither of my kids are that particularly that, <laughs> that, that well inclined in terms of computers, so uh, no, it's not something I can share with them. But yeah, it's been a part of my life. I've been very fortunate and blessed that I've had a career in one industry which I've loved and continued to, which um, you know, I've grown in and devolved and changed careers a few times along the way but it's given me a lot um, along the way as well in terms of most people that know me know I live by the three E's of experience, exposure and education. I think it's given me all of that in in, an abundance.
0: Yeah I mean again I was reading or maybe it was another podcast that even when you were back at school or maybe college Fixing old computers and kind of trying to sell them to, is it some of the shops down Tottenham Court Road? Is that right?
1: Well, no, it was interesting. So, um, what I was doing is that I learned very quickly um, how to read circuit diagrams and repair um, computers. And um, yeah, I was uh, essentially what I would do is on a Saturday morning, I would uh, travel down into London um, and go down Tottenham Court Road, and which isn't, it doesn't look anything like it does today, yeah. but back in the day, yeah. it was the mecca of all computer shops. There were just, you know, loads of them all the way down from sort of the Tottenham Court Road by Center point all the way down to near Warren Street. There'd be loads of them. And um, I literally used to go in there um, in each shop one by one saying, have you got any 40 computers you want to repair? And um, I'd take them all and then I'd take them back and then I'd repair them, and then bring them back the following week. And uh, funny story, I remember the first time I went back, and I was quite proud of myself, rubbing my hands, and uh, I went into the first shop, it doesn't exist anymore, it was called Rother Cameras, and the gentleman that owned it was Jeremy Rother, who was actually, it was a camera shop that had moved into computers, and I remember going in and saying to him, right, I've got all your, um, you know, your repaired computers, can I have some money please, in the typical Homer Simpson style, and uh, he'd Kind of turned round and said to me, "Well, can you give me an invoice, please?" And I'm like, "What's an invoice? You know, I just want my money." And it's like that no, it doesn't work like that. You could have to have a company and get yourself set up. So I literally had to go into a bank on the Monday. I remember into a Barclays, and so I need to open a business account. And then I got myself a um, in those days invoices. You just bought an invoice pad with like carbon paper in it, ah, oh, yes. numbers on it, and I literally yeah. wrote them all out and had to go back. And then, you know, I had to learn then about, well, the fact is they don't pay you straight away. It's like, well, you know, what are your terms, 30 days, 14 days? And I'm like, no, I need the money now, please. I've done the work. (laughs) It was like, nah, it doesn't work like that. So I learned quite a lot about business very, very early. But, um, you know, to be fair, it it worked out really well because I was able to, um, you know, accumulate quite a bit of money um, and save quite a lot of money, which meant that when I finished studying um, you know, I was able to, you know, buy my first property when I was about 21 or 22.
0: Oh, wow. So, oh, yeah. So that's far. I mean, I was thinking like, I don't know, you know, 50 pounds per computer, but it sounds like it was a bit more. I mean, how, how much were you actually getting per computer?
1: Oh, God, it varied depending on yeah. And this is an era where it was mainly BBC B computers and spectrum. So most people on this listening to this will think, and what they're actually talking about <laughs> um, spectrum QLs and stuff like that. Um, so it was a long time ago, but um, yeah, I mean, I when I bought my first flat, I was able to put, you know, and this was in an era where you only had to put down a five percent deposit on a flat. And um, I think if I remembered, I, I put down like about sixty percent of the value of the flat down from what I'd saved, so I didn't do too
0: badly, so. Great, and common to a couple of other guests that we've had on the show, particularly Kike, who runs the uh, BYP Network. Oh yeah, I know Kike, yeah. Yeah, she had a a kind of sporting prowess that uh, flourished as she grew up, and I see that you did as well. Uh, You were a high jumper and a a long jumper, and um, I did read somewhere that, you decided not to pursue it in order to go to university. Is that, is that right? And why couldn't you do two at the same time?
1: Um, it was quite hard, actually. It was on a practical level in that, um, and it's still to this day. And I've, you know, been a, a board director at England Athletics. I see it very clearly. Is that you know there are blue ribbon events where they attract much more support and more money, and uh, and you can get more sponsorship. Um, whereas the jumps and the throws don't tend to do, you know, they don't tend to get the same level of, um, I guess, exposure. And the best way I look at this is if you remember 2012, the Olympics here and that super Saturday when we had all the wins that we had in in this, we had um, Mo Farah. And everybody forgets Greg Rutherford who won the long jump.
0: Yes. yes. um, He
1: was always the one that forgot. And even when you look afterwards in terms of, I guess, exposure, sponsorship and opportunity, I always felt that he never got as much as they did, even though he was an Olympic champion. And in fact, one of only a few, you know, multi medalists um, for um, the long jump as well. And I kind of realized when I was, you know, when I was, I had, you know, I had a decent little sponsorship deal with Adidas. I was quite a decent uh, jumper, but I was never going to be able to make a living from it. And I think at that time, this was in an era where you weren't, it was still an amateur sport. So If you got any money, it had to go into a trust fund that you only got access to when you retired, or the lump of it, or the bulk of it. Um, So there wasn't any real money in it. And and I also knew I was like the third or fourth best jumper in the country. And I was never going to be first. So, you know, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to, um, you know, make a living, or it wasn't something I was going to do. I loved it. I was passionate about it. But my education was always a priority. And then, when i started um you know it was just too far I, you know when you're when you're a specialist jumper the the specialist um, area was actually the crystal palace national sports centre as it was then and it was going to be a something like a two and a half hour trek one way so 5 hours a day round trip travelling to get there and um, i had to do that at least four times a week minimum to make sure that you know I was at a standard that I needed to, which was actually impossible to do that while you're studying. Um, I looked at scholarships in the US. Um, There was a couple of um, universities I looked at over there. But again, it was in an era where unless you were going to get into an Ivy League, which was really competitive, um, you know, any of the other universities, um, you know, you probably weren't going to get to do a degree that you wanted to. And it may not be of the same sort of, or seen in the same way as you know, a do a, a degree from a more reputable university. So I kind of thought, well, I'm not going to be able to make a living from this. It's going to probably take up a lot of time, and um I was comfortable. I'd I'd, um, I'd achieve my potential.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a bit of a, a tough one. Or, or you you might know it, but do you remember your your PBs back then, your your personal bests, like for high jump and for long jump?
1: Yeah, I was like, um, oh, blimey! I think I was a two. A 213 high jumper, I remember that, because that's seven foot, and that was something I had to remember, because that was kind of like a yardstick of a decent high jumper. And I'm not that tall, so it was, um, you know, I think uh, when you look at some of the people that were around when I was jumping, they were a lot taller. Uh, but I just had a lot of power that I could, tra- you know, be able to transfer through into a good vertical lift. And uh, Long jump, I was um, about a 735, 736 long jumper. So decent, but not good enough. I mean, you think about it, you've got to be jumping over eight meters consistently to be able to really do well in the long jump. And, you know, as a high jumper, really, unless you're jumping over 230, you're not going to even be competing for, for any of the medals in anything. So, yeah, I was never going to get that, you know, that far. So, yeah, I was comfortable where I got to. So it was a good time to, to kind of uh, jack it in, in a way. Yeah. And then, as you
0: say, you went to Southbank University to study engineering. How did you find that there? I I, I know kind of a couple of people that went there and uh, because it's so central, you get the best of both worlds, don't you? You get the the nightlife, but then you also get the, um, you know, it's a a good university as well. So how did you find it there?
1: I loved it. I loved it. Um, I had a good time there. Um, I think, yes, it was in London. I knew that I needed to be in London. I mean, I wouldn't, you know, Certainly my children, as they approach university age, I don't want them to study in London, not because the, the universities are not good. I just want them to have a, an independent life on campus outside of London. So I didn't have that choice. So for me, it was that was the choice, um, certainly for my master's to do that. So, yeah, I, I loved it. I, I think um, to this day I'm still involved with South Bank. My charitable trust provides the... Um, the sponsorship prize to the top diverse student in engineering every year um and yeah i've been involved um with the university since i've left there so yeah i I think it's a great place for diverse students um people that sometimes don't always get the opportunity elsewhere for whatever reason um i think you know south bank's a very accommodating one i've got you know i've got a real soft spot for south bank and also for burbett um, which um, allows you to study in the evenings, because I think that's, for me, when you're not, you know, when you're from an unconventional background or you've got other things going on and when you need that flexibility, um, then, you know, I felt that um, those types of universities offer that for people that may not be able to just do a straight full-time degree or need to work or do something else to to support themselves.
0: Yeah. So you, you you get your degree graduate and how how easy or how difficult did you find getting that first kind of graduate job
1: <laughs> Um yeah hard I mean you I'm sure you hear lots of people will say that they've got to do squillions and dillions of um you know uh, applications before they get there and yeah, I was probably no different um I had a lot to do my dream my dream was to work first to go on the IBM graduate program and um yeah, it was very competitive. I remember there was probably about 2,500 people that applied. I got down to the last 15, and they were only taking on 10, so I didn't make the cut. So I was a bit gutted at that point in time, but that that was fine. I went on to do a couple of other things. But I ended up getting my first job um, as a result of I was the only applicant who was prepared to move outside of London with the company. So they were based um, – if you remember right, they were based on the old Kent Road. Um, and they were moving to Red Hill uh, within about two or three months. And I think everybody that went for the job was like, gosh, no, that's too far. I'm not moving out there. Well, I'm not prepared to commute out there. And I was just wanted a job. So um, I kind of had a rough idea where Red Hill was. And then um, uh, that's what I did. So um, and in fact, it dictated where I bought my first place, actually. Okay. Uh, which was actually in south london on the main line that went down to red hill which was the main Brighton line so i ended up buying a my first place in um, south Norwood so uh, which allowed me to get to east Croydon very easily and then out to red hill so that yeah that's that's why i ended up doing it um, i was quite fortunate actually um, a, a close friend of my mum also lived not too far, so I had a little bit of um, support um, around. But, yeah, that was probably the main reason. So I I worked there for about um, probably two or three years, maybe a bit longer. Um, And my dream was always to get into a big kind of um, tech company. This was a smaller company, but very entrepreneurial. They were probably one of the first companies to start um, jumping onto the Taiwanese market of cloned IBM PCs. So um, they got in really early. The the guy that ran the company was very entrepreneurial. He had made massive contacts out in Taiwan, and he bought back all the parts. And we used to um, build the computers. So that's how I started out. And I did that for a number of years, learned a lot, and then eventually moved to a larger company, which was, oh, gosh, ended up being an IBM system house. I did a lot of IBM work. But it was actually a company called Granada when I joined. And Granada used to be part of Granada TV, which doesn't probably exist today. But they had a computer arm and that got then sold off to a big American company. Uh, And that kind of started my love of working for American companies. So um, I worked as a service engineer repairing computers all around London, then out in the southeast, and then eventually moved into, you know, much bigger American companies, um, which got me Kind of traveling a bit to the US quite a bit. And then I lived out there for a bit. Then I came back. Um, and then I eventually ended up at Cisco, which was probably the, the start of the internet. And I remember at the time I was kind of consulting and um, discussing the fact that the internet was coming along and you'd be able to do all these things. And I guess Cisco were just at the, I mean, they were founded in 1984, but they were building all the infrastructure that the internet was being built out on. And I just, I remembered um, working for a company where we resold the products and I just met a lot of people that worked at Cisco and thought, I'd love to work for that company. And um, I remembered I, I applied to work for them, I think it was in 1996, I think. And I went, I, I applied there to work there as an engineer, as a, a customer engineer, sort of like a pre-sales consultant. And, um I almost got the job, and then they realised um, that I worked for a Cisco reseller. And and to be fair to Cisco, they have a real golden rule that they don't take um, employees from their partners who service them. So um, they only found that out after they were about to offer me, and they they didn't take me on. But luckily, about two and a half three years later, um, I managed to get in my a different route, and um, yeah, spent quite a bit of time at cisco nearly 19 years so, yeah yeah i
0: saw that i saw that and what led you to make the move from you know the engineering side to the sales side did you make that leap within cisco
1: um i started to to be fair i would started to do that before okay. um the last company i'd worked for i worked as like a general manager on the networking and communications part so i would started to get more of interest and in fact it was the company before that i'd made the transition and um I was working as a pre-sales consultant and I just realized that the sales guys were earning a bucket load of money <laughs> and, and, they, and they weren't that particularly that great at selling or, or knew the product that well. And I knew it a lot better and I just kept moaning. And I remember um, one of the sales directors there um, saying to me one day, like, put up or shut up. Cause I kept saying, I could do your job with my eyes shut. And then he said, no, come on. Well, Why don't you come over and be an account manager? And, uh, and I think, you know, the, the, the ego got in the way then I went, of course I can, right, I'll do it. And then suddenly like about two weeks later, I was an account manager and I was like, Oh, and then it was like, suddenly my salary, my base salary went down quite considerably and I was on like commissions and I had to kind of sell basically. So, uh, but you know, it didn't take me long, um, to kind of get into it. So i got a bit of a taste for it and then. I gradually moved up to become a sales manager, and then um, you know I was leading our comms and networking division, um, which I had loads of consultants, marketeers, um, salespeople working for me. Um, but then when I went to Cisco, and this is probably one of the things I take from when you're in a job, you know, be comfortable to take lateral moves. So I almost went backwards. So when I joined Cisco, I was that I knew that it was going to be a great place for me career-wise. I took probably two or three steps back to become an account manager again. So, um, and I was happy to do that because I knew it was the right company and I would thrive and grow, and, and I did, and it did quite quickly. I think I was an account manager for maybe a couple of years. I was global account manager of the year, which was an amazing feat to get, and then quite quickly moved into sales management and um, you know, just – had a tremendous career there to be honest um you know it, it led me to you know to lead teams across all of you know Europe Middle East Africa Russia um and you know a lot of you know traveling a lot of you know leadership roles um and you know as the business grew and Cisco grew I was able to to grow with it um and people often say god nearly 19 years at one company that's a long time and I said yeah but I probably had eight different jobs, so if you kind of chivy that up, I'm probably doing one job every two, two and a half years, something like that, before you're moving on. And that was one of the great things is that you were always encouraged to kind of grow, and evolve, and move on. And if you've got that scope to do it within the same company, then you, you know I was happy to do that. And uh, you know they, you know Cisco, you know was able to provide a lot of great education along the way. I've got to study at some great business schools in the US. And yes, I was, I was quite happy with that.
0: Yeah, I see that you, um, you study at Stanford and, and Wharton. So I mean, just, you know, top tier sort of business schools. You mentioned about being the global account manager. I don't know if you remember, but how many sort of people were eligible for that award? And was it purely based on numbers, the fact that you won that award that particular year? Or how how did you...
1: One part of it, I mean, as as always, as a salesperson, that's one of the... the, uh, But it's also your behaviour and the other things that you do from a leadership perspective. I think at the time when I was there, I think we had some like about twenty-three, twenty-four thousand 24,000 salespeople. But in the area, that category I was in, it was probably about maybe 2,000 people that were eligible. Um, So... You know, to to be able to 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 get that recognition. I think the scariest thing is, and it's probably one of my favourite pictures. Our CEO at the time was John Chambers. So, um, and and Cisco, because it had so many employees, salespeople, they always had to host their sales meeting in Vegas because it was one of the only places that you could actually cater uh, and uh, accommodate twenty five thousand salespeople. And then the MGM Arena is probably one of the only places you can get. That many people in for a sales event, so you know I think the scariest part was actually actually going up on stage to receive um, the award from John Chambers in front of all your peers. And when you've got like twenty odd thousand other sales people. Your name's up in lights. It's uh, yeah, it's a pretty pretty daunting thing. Um, but yeah, I've still I've still got the trophy somewhere on the bookshelf somewhere. It was a it was a beautiful trophy. Actually, it took me took me all my wits to get it home in one piece because. <laughs> It was just like you're given this thing, and it's like, wow, how am I going to get this home? But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's one of my favourite pictures I've got with um, John Chambers and um, Chris Dedicote, who was our president of Emir at the time, and uh, Rick Justice, who was, um, you know, one of our um, senior VP. So these were like heavyweight people in the tech industry. So to be up there as this sort of like youngest guy getting this award was. Uh, yeah, still one of my favourite pictures, and uh, one of the only ones I had hair as well. So, <laughs> <laughs> and then after
0: 18 years, I know you eventually made it to joining PwC. I've had sort of different friends and acquaintances when they've left or they've moved into professional services. Again, mixed results or mixed experiences. Some people really enjoy it; other people not so much because you're you're, you're on the clock all the time. How did you find that, that journey there?
1: I enjoyed it. It was my second stint, to be fair, because when I was younger, I did work, funny enough, for, I guess, the, the precursor to PwC, which was Coopers and Lightbrand. Oh, yeah. Um, ironically, I, I probably lasted about four weeks, and I realized I wanted to do tech rather than be a management consultant, so I kind of left there to go and do that. And, um, but so I, I didn't, you know, going back to PwC many years later, I went in as the head of sales um, I had a good experience. It's a great firm, you know. I think, um, you know, it's got a lot of opportunity. It's quite entrepreneurial as it's a partnership, as you know. So most partnerships, you have that level of entrepreneurship, um, but you know, very customer centric. And as you say, you know, at the end of the day, in most professional services firms, you're either a fee earner or a fee burner. So um, I have to say, being the head of sales. I was more of a fee burner or fee enabler. Um, so I wasn't earning the fees because I wasn't sold out to a client to do that work. But um, yeah, I had a great time. I mean, we, we we were on a transformation at PwC and the role was really is to professionalize our sales organization better and align it more with our customers. Um, it was during the time of COVID. So, you know, there was a real pivot towards, you know, CRM systems and sales processes, which, um, you know, I enjoyed and taking us on the journey for but i think the the one observation i always say about um professional services firms is that you know to be successful and certainly to get to partner level it's it's kind of like a lifelong commitment um i you know i always say to people um the professional services industry is fabulous if you join as a graduate or through an apprentice program at the start and you work your way up if you if you've got the you know the the, um, the time to do it. You've got a lot of people in professional services that have been there for a long time. And then eventually, hopefully, as you get towards your 40s, you become a partner, which is, you know, you're, you're taking, you know, profit uh, from the company and it becomes, um, you know, significant. Um, but I think when you join the companies probably later in your life as a, an experience hire, um, you often find that, you know, you've got to try and find your place Um, in there and it can be a little bit more harder to navigate. But I, you know, personally, I had a really good time there. I did the role I wanted to do for a while. And then, you know, to be honest, um, I think I yearned to go back to tech. I think I missed it. And, um, you know, lots of professional services firms, including PwC, were certainly moving more into tech. But I guess I just Preferred that kind of West Coast vibe. I think one of the challenges with professional services they're quite regulated, certainly on the audit side. So there's probably a lot more rigor and process. Um, and you know that opportunity, certainly at the lower levels below partner, to be more entrepreneurial, are probably not as um, not as easy to come by. So I was quite fortunate and um, got headhunted by LinkedIn, and um, it was an opportunity to go back into tech. Um, and and um, I was uh, I was happy to do that, but uh, still got a lot of time for for the firm, you know. And um, you know, love working with them. They're a client you probably see online that we, have you know, done quite a lot of work recently um, this earlier this year with um, with PwC around their new Equation campaign. So you know, they you know, it's a place that I had a good time with, um, and um, you know, I left well, which is always a good thing. And um, as a result, I think it's testament that. I've still got a lot of friends there and we still do, you know, great business with them where I am now.
0: Yeah, definitely want to touch on on your time at uh, LinkedIn as well. But I, I know you, you were just finishing off talking about PwC and I think around about the same time, you actually was awarded an MBE about 2018, I think it was.
1: And it was during that time, actually, literally, ironically, it was probably days after I think I left cisco on the 31st of december 2017 but i already knew i was going to get awarded because you get told about a month before so it was almost a bit it was a bit of a weird feeling because you kind of i'd left cisco which is a big part of my life i joined a new company and then literally that week i joined them you know it got announced that i'd uh, got an mbe so it was kind of a bit weird in a way but um you know that's how the you know that's how things kind of fall really yeah
0: and what was, your, what was your emotions in, in, in hearing the news? Because I know for certain people in the black community, they have mixed feelings about, you know, those kind of awards. You know, Benjamin Safani is, is the one that comes to mind. But how did you feel about it?
1: For people that know about it, one, one it's one of, those, one of those awards that you have nothing to do with. So, you know, it's, uh, it's a long process. You don't actually submit anything. Somebody has to do it in secret on your behalf. Um, And I only know that because I've had to write letters of recommendation for other people that have been put forward for awards. So I know it's not something I had any idea about. And the irony of it is, is that, and and I respect the fact people will have different opinions on it. My opinion was that I've not put myself forward for it, but it's more about what the award's for and what it stood for, for me, in terms of the work that had been done. And people often don't, they obviously see what it is an MBE and they think empire and all that. And I get that. And I, and I totally respect people's views of not taking the award on that basis. But the the award was being given where people have taken the time to nominate you for something you've done for your community. And for me, you know, legacy is quite important in terms of what you're recognized for. It's not, I don't really care about, you know, the roles I've had or what I've done in terms of things I've worked on, but you know, what is important is, you know, what, you know, what impact did I have um, when I was on this earth? So I think for me, it was when it came through, I had no idea. It was funny, actually, we moved house. So I was actually um, uh, moved house, but luckily had redirection on my post. And when it came through to the new house, I I actually said at the time, this is, can't be for me, it must be for my wife, who, who's, a, who's a barrister. And I thought, it looked official, it didn't look like it was anything for me. But then I kind of peeled back the the envelope where the redirection was over who it was addressed to and it was to me and I had no idea. I was thinking cabinet office, what what have I done? Oh, you know, you're thinking well, I've got a speeding fine, have I done something wrong? <laughs> so it was that bit of curiosity at first and then um then I opened it and then it kind of gives you it's kind of like kind of weird language they use, the way in the which they're telling you you're gonna be awarded. And I think Theresa May was prime minister at the time, so it was like you know Theresa May wants to put you forward for this, and it goes off somewhere else, and then you have to say yes or no, and um, yeah, and then you're sworn to secrecy really. So it was kind ah. good... of so I think I got told maybe beginning of November, um, and then you kind of like sworn to secrecy until the end of December really. So yeah, it was an, it was a, it was um, yeah, it was a, a really pleasant surprise, and in a way. I think it was the end of an era because I knew I was finishing this nearly 19 years at Cisco. I'd done a lot while I was there and I, you know, did a lot of the work while I was in the company as well, off, you know, off my own back for things I was passionate about with others. And, uh, you know, it felt like a nice bit of closure for a period in my life that, you know, I'd done a lot. So I you know, I was quite comfortable with it. But, you know, equally in my, in my own friendship groups, you know, I've got friends who were like, I can't believe you took it. And, um, you know, and I get that. And, um, but for me, it was look, you know, it was for what I did. And, you know, I very specific. And I always say to people, as much as you may say empire and that, it's for what you stood for, what, what it was for. And as I said, for my, for me, it was representing our people in terms of the work we do to make sure that we get more people like you and I into science and technology. So, you know, if that's what's left, there's a stamp to say that's what it was for, then I'm happy with that. Yeah.
0: And for, for listeners, since you, Got the MBE for his services for young ethnic minorities in regards to science and technology. Is that right? Yeah. 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 So, um, he's done lots of work over the years, still continuing the work, which mm-hmm. is, which, which is great. And we'll touch on some of the sort of charities that you're involved in in a few seconds. But yeah, you, you eventually make the move to LinkedIn. And I think now that you're heading up a large team over there, I mean, how, how big is your team that you're? that you're leading now uh, there at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's quite large. It's about 60-odd people um, at present, and um, I look after the UK and Ireland. Um, LinkedIn's um, divided into sort of three main businesses, really. We've got the, I guess, the talent part, which most people know, which includes our staffing and recruiting, um, which, you know, most of us go on LinkedIn if we use it as a platform. That's that part of the business, and what we do is one huge part. Um, then we've got marketing solutions, which is where I work, which looks at you know business to business brands and how you know they use our platform to you know to share with our members. We've got over 930 million members on LinkedIn, so we do a lot of work around brands and around um, demand and lead generation. You know we're we're very member first focused, so you know we don't sell our You know the personal data of any of our members at all, but what we do is create audiences of people that would be probably interested in certain aspects of a particular company's brand. So I lead an organisation looking after all of our large enterprise um, customers. um, You know, effectively looking to grow uh, grow their brands or their reputation um, from a you know from both a safety first perspective, but also you know, ensuring that they're engaging with the right audiences who will be interested in what they do. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm loving it. You know, it's, you know, almost coming up to two years after the summer that I would have been here. Um, and it feels like a third career because um, I've never really done marketing before. Um, so I've always kind of had people that i've worked with who are marketeers so the last year has been great because i've had to learn a lot um, i've got a lot of experts who work in my teams who know a hell of a lot more than i do but you know what i've found is that you know being able to know what's in the mind of motivating a uh, a cmo has been something that i've um, i've really enjoyed learning so it's been you know i've thrived on it um, and continuing to learn and enjoy it and So, yeah, it's, you know, it's a fabulous company. And as you probably know, it's owned by Microsoft as well. So, um, you know, we've got, um, you know, a lot of expertise within the organization that we can leverage from. Um, You know, I think everyone at the moment is talking about generative AI and we are, you know, at the forefront of that, both in our own platforms and what we do, but also through what we do through Microsoft as well. So it's a great place to be right now. And again, a great place to continue to learn. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, Tunji, you've you clearly done so much over the course of your career. You continue doing so much as well. I mean, we are kind of running out of time, but I know just some of the other things that you're involved in. You, you, you mentioned you're an art collector, you're a non-exec director on a number of boards, you know, um, English athletics being one. You've been to business school a couple of times, and I think you're an executive coach as well. Have you finished with that, or are you still, you're still sort of studying? Yeah, I'm
1: just about finishing off. I've done uh, okay. my education last year, so I'm just submitting my coaching stuff to get accredited. So, yeah, I should be a level seven exec coach probably by the summer, if not soon before that. But so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that later to do a lot more coaching. I've been doing it informally for years. But, yeah, I think, you know, yeah, I've got a lot of interest, and I think that's one thing that you know, if anyone's listening, I've probably been um, very intentional about is to not just be defined by one particular role or an industry. I've always had lots of interests um, since I was young. Literally, I was I, I had a very good mentor who asked and told me um, that I should consider how I um, be a, I wouldn't say a polymath, but certainly had more interest to me than just you know, technology um, uh, at the time, and i and I deliberately looked at different things. He gave me some really good advice, which I took, um, certainly around business, but uh, one of them was art. Um, and um, he had a very simple um, philosophy is that he always said that he goes he goes learn and invest in art because he will always outdo the stock market. And um, I learned a bit about art, and then I realized very quickly that the artist I like. my favorite artist is Salvador Dali. I love surrealism. Um, and I realized very quickly that I couldn't afford it Uh, but what I did stumble across during my travels is that I realized that um, I loved African modern and contemporary art so yeah, so I started collecting about 30 years ago and uh, built up a decent collection which um, is still ongoing I bought a nice piece last month when I was in San Francisco so that that journey continues and yeah when I get a chance I talk about it I've done a couple of articles for Artsy and been featured in the New York Times um, and bits and bobs like that for for different pieces. So that's something that's certainly been of interest. I've been an angel investor for many years. So um, I've got quite a few investments. And again, one of my golden rules is that I I really only invest and I have only invested from an angel perspective in um, black businesses. So um, that's something that I'm quite proud of. In terms of you know if you're generating wealth or income that can be reinvested, then invest it in your in your own people. So I've been very intentional about that, and you know I've got a number of good investments with with uh, companies. Probably the ones that are more well known um, will be probably two. One is with Chukus, which is a Nigerian tapas restaurant, the first the world's first Nigerian tapas restaurant. So I was one of the original investors there. And uh, probably one more recent. And actually, somebody that's been on your podcast is Claudine Adiemi. Oh, so you've, in, you've invested in her business? Yeah. So, oh, brilliant. Okay. Businesses along the way. So, Early Bird, which is a, an AI onboarding company. So, I've invested in that. So, there's a few, um, to say the least, over the years that I've invested in because I do believe that, you know, we've got great talent. Someone like Claudine's a great, great person because, you know, I've mentored her for many years and um, it's been a delight seeing her journey. So, Um, And like anything in life, you know, you learn, you earn, and you return. I think, you know, I made that conscious decision around returning, I guess, um, some of the, I guess, the the benefit I've had, and in, in some cases, some of the wealth I've generated, is to return that back to my community. So I think I was quite fortunate about six or seven years ago, I started a charitable trust. Um, in memory of my parents, actually, and um, called the Elysia Charitable Trust. And the reason it's called the Elysia Charitable Trust is that my parents both grew up in Elatia. That's their town that they're from. So, and, you know, essentially the trust makes predominantly impacts and, um, you know, long-term donations to a number of charities, but probably more importantly, we make a lot of um, investments into young people, a lot of black females actually going into science and tech to be quite specific because you know for me I know that a lot of young women don't always um, continue a career in science and tech and I'm passionate about seeing more women of color in science and tech so every year on top of what we do with the universities around investments in terms of bursaries or scholarships we provide um, bursaries to um, predominantly young women it's about an 80-20 ratio between men and women in favour of women, that we give them bursaries to go to universities. So we're quite proud. We've had a number of go to a lot of prestigious universities, um, both here and also abroad. Um, we've also, in one of our years, if you know Tom Alube at all, um, he runs the African um, um, Science Foundation for Girls in Ghana. We've um, we've provided a scholarship there for a young girl to to study um, in in the uh the facilities that he has out there and then we support a number of charities on an ongoing basis we've got everything from the sickle cell um sickle cell society right the way through to able child africa um through to casper which is an autism um charity so quite a few and they're ongoing so they never stop um right the way through to um you know charities such as um There's the Young Leaders Foundation that David O'Cora runs, um, Westway and Eastway, which is a great uh, charity and uh, doing a lot of work, you know, Saturday schools for, you know, for um, young black um, boys specifically, but also girls as well now. So there's a lot of really good things that we provide ongoing, um, you know, investments for. And I've been and have been in the past, um, you know, a mentor on the 100 Black Men of London. And again, we continue to support them on an ongoing basis so there's quite a few charities um, that we provide ongoing support for you know month in month out and then we do a lot of spot ones where we do bursaries and scholarships and my small bunch of trustees then decide who we're going to support
0: so you've you've got all this wealth of experience you know your lead of people You've got so much to offer in terms of knowledge and experience. What's next on your horizon? Are you going to be looking for that number one job, you know, that CEO job at some point in your future? Or is that not such a big thing for you?
1: No, not a big thing for me. Okay. No, no, not at all. Um, I'm happy with the job I've got now. And, um, you know, I guess next phase, if when it, when it gets there, will probably be a portfolio um, of NED positions, which I'm continuing to build on and then doing a bit of um, exec coaching. So that's kind of what will be next whenever that comes, whether it's in the next five or 10 years or whenever. But, um, you know, for the next um, for foreseeable future, I'm loving loving what I'm doing at LinkedIn, loving the role, still lots to learn. And um, I think having that balance of a great corporate life um, coupled with some great angel investment to get involved in and the charitable trust work, um you know continues to keep me sort of motivated and then the rest of it's really just getting my um my two uh teenagers through into uh further education and then you know getting them into adulthood so the first one of those will get to be an adult this year and then the other one's not far behind so that's kind of like the what's next really yeah i see that you're i'm not sure if she,
0: your eldest or your youngest but she's a she's an athlete as well
1: yeah, yeah my my eldest daughter's a sprinter so she's yeah. Yes, yeah, she's doing pretty well. Good luck to her.
0: And just one, one final sort of question that we ask all, all guests. Um, how much of your success do you think that you've had over the years? How much do you think of it how much do you think has been down to either luck? Has, how much of it has been down to hard work, or how much of it is down to to talent? If you had to choose one out of the three, what, what, what would you say has been the biggest contributor to your success?
1: Probably none of them, probably. <laughs> Probably sponsors, right? Okay,
0: that's an interesting take. That's the first time somebody said that. What would you mean by that?
1: So, um, great. I mean, yeah, you know, we often talk about the role that mentors and sponsors um, and coaches play in in your career and life generally, actually. But sponsors, by far for me, was one. They're the people that advocate and talk about you when you're not in the room to the people that often matter where they're in that place, and that's something that I think has played. Um, the biggest role in navigating I me mean, when I look back at those inflection points in my career um, or when I've moved, they're often down to advocacy and um, I think when you've got advocacy for people that are in a position to make a decision and they and they've seen you in work and they've seen you in action where they think yeah that's a good person to invest or to to um, to put some time into or give an opportunity to um that's for me as being probably the you know the number one area and then you know sometimes it's a bit of luck and certainly the hard work because you still got to do it once the door has been opened for you you still got to go through the door and perform but it's getting the opportunity in the first place and that sponsorship which um i try to do myself um for others coming through is to advocate um you know as you've probably seen on this call there's a number of people i've named called out because that's that's the best thing you can do is to advocate for people so that more people understand what they're doing and, and take an interest in what they're doing. So,
0: Great. Excellent. Well, Tunji, thank you so much for all of your time, all of your wisdom that I hope people take away. You're welcome. And um, commiserations, because you did say right at the beginning of the podcast that you're a, you're an Arsenal fan. So commiserations with what's happened over the last two weeks. What What are your feelings about it?
1: Well, you 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 said that I said that I didn't tell you I was an Arsenal fan. You've you've decided to tell everybody that I am, but I am an Arsenal <laughs> fan and a proud one. So you can rub that in. But, um, but look, I'm 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 happy with the season. Look, if you don't ask me at the beginning of the season, you know, and everyone keeps saying you bottled the league and everything like that. But actually, look, if you don't said to me at the beginning of the season you're going to come second you're going to challenge for the tyres, where so you've got champions league football would you take it I would have bitten your arm off and said absolutely and yeah I'm happy where we've finished off and I know a lot of other people will say oh you lost it and all that but you know I'm I'm happy where we are and uh, as a as the the other side of um the other side of uh, north london um, as I always say mind the gap I think that gap is sufficiently large enough where then they probably won't even be getting Thursday night football by the looks of it so yeah well there we go Tunji (laughs) thank you so much for your time pleasure Tunji thanks
0: thank you so much to Tunji there we didn't quite have time to get into all of it but my gosh hasn't he done a lot in his life and in fact continues to do so much as well he is putting all of us to shame as I mentioned, I'll put down in the show notes links to Your Future, Your Ambition, the organization that we talked about that encourages young people to get into STEM subjects and careers. And also for anybody that's interested to know a little bit more about fostering or farming, as, as Tunji called it, that took place during the kind of 70s and 80s, there's an interesting article in the garden that I'll uh, put in the in the show notes as well. So, you know, do check that out. That's it for this week's show. Hope you enjoyed it. You know what to do. Please check us out on social media. Comment, share, you know, like it. Let other people know and catch you on the next show.